Glocal, podcast on locally incubated global technology powerhouses. We sell to them, we sell them personalization, and we sell them actually understanding of body data of their consumers to improve their supply chain. So basically, for them, it's extremely important to improve the supply chain, to reduce uh, not only returns, but to reduce like the, the amount of apparel that they have in stock. Vladim believes that fashion is becoming more personalized and that this trend will continue. His company, 3D Look, can accurately get your body data with only two pictures taken through your smartphone. Vadim had two previous successful ventures and is now onto something much bigger. Over the past three years, Vadim raised capital from US VCs like Draper and Us, 500 Startups, and a bunch of European VCs as well. In this episode, we'll discuss his previous ventures, why he moved away from a $13 million yearly revenue business, and what excites him the most about 3D Look. Let's jump to the episode. Hello, Vadim. How are you? Hi, Anis. I'm, I'm really great, and thanks for inviting me here. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us. Are you currently in Odessa? Yep. Just returned from New York City. Which one do you like more, New York City or Odessa? Well, I mean, Odessa actually will be always in my heart, but uh, <laughs> I do love New York City and plan to live there for some time. So you are relocating to New York City now? Yep. Just in the process of that, just got my own visa accepted and plan to move there within a month. Oh, congrats, congrats. Thank um, you. I'll visit you next time I'm there. Sure, I will be happy to see you there, yeah. So um, in this episode, let's first talk a bit about your experience before 3D Look. Let's talk a bit about Clicky and then we can move forward to 3D Look. I know that you started an agency and then you did advertising automation tool, which got acquired by a media agency. And then you started Clicky, which is a mobile advertising platform uh, back in 2011. What were some of the trends that hinted you that it was the right time to start a mobile ad network? I've uh, been doing different stuff before I arrived at uh, mobile advertising. I've been gradually moving towards it. So I've been doing some game development, then I was doing some e-commerce, then social media marketing, then I got excited about that. Uh, and then I started to see the development of uh, targeted advertising in social media. So that's how my first ad tech mm-hmm. startup called Ad Center was born in 2011. So it was a SaaS tool for social media campaigns optimization focused on CIS countries to allow SMBs to run, mm-hmm. to easily run a campaigns in multiple sources on like Vcontakte or on the Klasniki or Mail.ru. They were separate at the time. And then we planned to move to connect to Facebook, to LinkedIn, to make it global. But I mean, it didn't take off as well as I expected because a social media market in Eastern Europe didn't unleash its whole potential. I don't see any successful stories there in terms of like the service providers and SaaS platforms. I still managed to decided that I need to sell it. I had an investor. I mean, uh, it was my friend, Alex Bornikov. Yeah, with Alex Bornikov, uh, you go way back, right? I mean, I see Alex Bornikov um, as an investor in your first company. I think he's an investor in Clicky. Um, and then you guys started Wannabis together, which was like a, almost like an incubator center that also does investment. Yes. And now he's an investor at 3D Look too. Yeah. So he became my friend after he made an investment into my <laughs> first companies. But yes. And then actually, when I started to look for the buyer, I've been talking to a few companies. And then Alex just came up and said that they were looking for the platform to allow their advertisers to run display campaigns on social media because they had some budgets. 
and he was thinking about developing it in-house, but then he decided why we couldn't acquire Red Center. That's what happened. I covered my course. I mean, team was actually transferred to Veta Media. Some people still work there. So I was happy. So I couldn't call it a successful exit, but still, the company didn't die. And the company continued to operate, which was really important mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. And now you started Clicky, right? Yes. I actually started Clicky a bit earlier than I saw that center. And at the beginning, it was ad network that monetized gaming applications on social media. Like we contacted, then we went to Facebook, joined the list of verified ad providers by Facebook. So it was called ClickBurner in the beginning. Then it was rebranded into Clicky in 2011. But I started to actively manage this company right almost mm-hmm. at the point of time when I decided to sell at Center to completely switch to Clicky. Because at the time, I mean, the two companies were managed by almost the same team and then I just decided to separate them to sell at center to focus on clicky to move it to mobile uh, course per install campaigns mm-hmm. and then it started to really grow really fast basically I rebranded in 2011 but in fact clicky appeared as a separate company only in 2013 yeah so I consider that clicky was born in 2013 and then I was approached by a VC fund that actually proposed me to raise a round I didn't look for money at that point in time I didn't know almost anything about venture funding the company was growing well it was profitable but, uh, I mean, they proposed really attractive terms. Some part of them was a cash out. I decided, why not? Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you cashed out from Clicky. Yes. Um, who was the investor? So it was iTech Capital. I think it's not very active now, but they had a big fund mm-hmm. five years ago. And they invested in some big companies like Avia Sales, Sailpool, mostly from... Uh, Russian, like from CIS region. region yeah. So if they didn't offer me a cash out, I wouldn't do that because just I, I was not looking for uh, to raise money at that point of time. But it was actually good that we raised because uh, we went through audit with Deloitte. I got uh, some a lot of useful knowledge about uh, like uh, corporate management, etc., etc. So we managed to grow the company four x since iTech invested. But I want to know where it ended. Um, so I want to know, like, when I, I think iTech put in $2 million to the company back in 2015, right? Uh, so we actually reached an agreement in 2014, but officially announced in 15. So we raised when the company uh, had, like, a 3.7 million annual revenue, but then uh, we managed to grow it to 13. Oh, that's great growth, yeah. They should be happy with that, right? Yeah, but then the market started to crash. Mm-hmm. We wanted to sell it. I wanted to actively sell it in 2000. Probably I started to work on this in 2016 when the company was growing really fast and the market was fine. I should just uh, rely only on myself, but I had not successful experience with two investment banks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we just a lot of time. And then when I actually started to have some potential buyers, we even went to due diligence with one company. The market started by crash. I just mean that Google and several DSPs just had an agreement that uh, they formed like a kind of association and they started to push publishers to demand that any ad network that wants to run ads on your website, this ad network should have its own identifier on this publisher's website. Yeah. Basically eliminates arbitrage, it eliminates attack in its own sense. So because it only allows you to do direct buying, but we and hundreds of other companies couldn't buy directly from Washington mm-hmm. Post yeah. or from Supercell app. 
SSP or, yeah. And then, and another trend was that a lot of fraud was in that market. So a lot of fraudulent installs, a lot of Chinese <laughs> yeah. farms with a lot of iPhones that were creating a lot of artificial installs. So a lot of advertisers started to go away from CPI affiliate channels to Facebook, to Google as well. And they started to close that activity. So a lot of these trends were actually played at the same, exploded at the same time, which is really painful. And we couldn't sell it. And one deal actually fell apart, right? Because the buyer was also very concerned about the situation. Mm -hmm. The buyer also started to care only about survival. And it happened when I actually switched completely to 3D Look. Of course, I was advising the company. But I was not involved very actively because I thought, well, we couldn't sell it. Let's see just another opportunity. And we decided to pivot the company mm -hmm. into sense. SaaS company to sell, to promote the software on SaaS, to completely start doing any arbitrage just because I didn't believe in it. We could just try to survive as some companies still do, but just waste uh, several years for nothing to create no value. And the team, we cut the cost. So the company is now like in a startup mode. It has some successes with uh, its own software, but it's still like a long way to go. But I think it's there is a chance that by providing its software, there is a bigger chance that it can regain its position rather than trying to still do some kind of arbitrage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I feel like uh, when you started Clicky, it was the right time. Um, it was the right time to do mobile ad network. And it's very honest of you to say that you only accepted the investment because uh, you're also doing some cash out. Um, it's it's really honest from your end, but now the world has turned and it's not the best times for Clicky. So it's great that you pivoted. Actually, we have a portfolio company um, called App Samurai, and they have a product called Intercepted, only focusing on fraud. And they say that one out of every three dollars on advertising is actually spent on fraud. So it's really tough to get on top of that. And then, as you've said, you moved from the ad tech world into the world of retail. Um, you started to do a AI-based deep tech solution yep. on, for offline and on, online retail. What was your motivation there? And can you please tell us what 3D Look does? In the beginning, ad tech was really interesting. It was attractive. I was always excited about like, thinking about some innovations and then implementing them into market. That makes me happy. And in the beginning, ad tech was this market. So I, I seen how we could scale after we implemented some innovations. But then a lot of companies came that tried to copycat what we do immediately, uh, like uh, 50 companies on the market were running between the advertisers and mm -hmm. saying that they are the market leaders. And I think a lot of fraud, a lot of scammers that just came there to have quick money without providing any value at all. And I wanted to find another one where I really could, uh, uh, I mean, solve some complex problem with the help of innovation and actually and bring some value to a very big group of people. And I was... Uh, uh, closely watching some success stories and and the uh, evolvement of different use cases based on smartphone cameras for a few years. So we started to think together with my uh, future co-founder, Alex, about the more practical uh, use cases with the camera on top of the camera that, that could, for example, allow anyone to measure himself and to create his 3D model. So basically this idea like emerged around the notion that we wanted to digitize the like bodies of online consumers in the world to create like a digital passport in other words. So anyone could have a digital passport in his smartphone mm -hmm. to use it 
to solve different uh, routine tasks, like uh, obviously buying apparel that fits without having to return it, mm -hmm. uh, using this, importing this data into a fitness app, or combining this data with data from Apple Health, or putting this avatar into a game. We started from entertainment use case. We, we created a B2C app that actually allowed anyone to upload to two photos and then a, a selfie to create a 3D model that you could dress in a funny outfit like superhero or catwoman and then to place it in AR and then to apply some kind of animation and then to record a short movie to put it on social <laughs> media. Now we, we see that it could have a much bigger success because of TikTok and etc. Maybe it was a bit too early. So we got like up to 50k installs without any marketing because of my previous experience in mobile we got a lot of data that we used for deep learning so a lot of proprietary photos of people front and side photos of people but we thought well i mean there is a, a very complicated monetization here let's go to something more practical then we went to health and fitness created a demo app there i showed it to some biggest um, fitness app developers like Red Rock apps or developers who created Kyla, like one of the most successful fitness apps. And we felt that they said like, well, that's a nice feature, but that's not a painkiller. And it's very important to understand that the difference between that. Let me so cut thought, you there. Um, let me cut yeah, you there, yeah. though, because that's something that I heard a lot too. I mean, like the other day I was talking to an investor um, about 3D Look and I told them that what you do is uh, with a mobile phone, a person can scan his or her body get an acute, accurate picture of their body. And then depending on that, um, they can do virtual fit-ons. They can see what products would look better on them, which would increase conversions and, of course, decrease returns for e-commerce companies. And he said that um, this seems more like a future than a product. What's your counter-argument here, especially in retail? Do you think this is more of a future than a product? In retail, first of all, it's a painkiller. I mean, it's hard to argue with that because it eliminates the problem of returns, of inconvenient buying experience of apparel in terms of... So it's not a feature. It's uh, The product is actually the, um, the platform that allows any business to just uh, to sign up there mm -hmm. to get a, a widget which is just a few lines of code to place this widget on your website and you and just imagine if you have a small made-to-measure company that creates dresses or shirts or suits uh, and you can just, uh, you need uh, your tailors to go and, and measure your customers or you need your, your customers to visit your office. Now, anyone from all around the world can just uh, upload to photos right on your website. Then just you can create this custom-made apparel for him. So it enables custom-made apparel, and it's right inside the trend of mm -hmm. mass customization. Yeah, we just launched this widget like a week ago, but before that, we we just uh, the client, the, our, our early clients just they had to put much more effort to integrate yeah. our API. But still, we see that they admit that some of these companies even couldn't have a business without us because now they can sell their apparel all around the world. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the trends that enabled such a solution? I mean, the mobile and the phone camera has been there for more than a decade now. What was not possible five, ten years ago and is possible now that enables you to do accurate body measuring only with two pictures off of a mobile phone? Oh, that's a good question. So actually, uh, yeah, I mean, that's true that some companies tried to crack this and failed or pivoted uh, like 10 years ago. It was the first wave then like six, five years ago. But uh, some scientific works were published on computer vision and machine learning and it evolved a lot. 
during the last like five years, people got much more used to make photos to solve some kind of problems. And even the face lenses and some Snapchat attempts with full body lenses, it also helps because people got more used to interact via camera. And uh, moreover, smartphones became much, much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And uh, also Amazon five years ago was not a big threat for uh, the businesses uh, because if you look at uh, at the mentions of the word Amazon at earning calls transcripts uh, of different public companies yeah. this like uh, it exploded right like five or four years ago because Amazon started to disrupt uh, like uh, apparel they, they apparel became a big thing for, for them I think like five or four years ago. They started their own private labels and the retailers started to suffer even more. And also these retail store closures, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if this, all these trends, uh, they uh, demand mm -hmm. doing some innovation by retailers, doing some customization, doing personalization. Mm -hmm. And through the look right inside this trend of personalization, of customization, that everyone is different, that everyone's body is different and people deserve personal attitude from retailers. So before, the cycle of apparel production looked like that, that brands decided that they will be manufacturing like these types of apparel, for example, tight pants and uh, some kind of uh, baggy sweaters, something like that, of these colors. And then they planned this cycle for a year, like two collections or like four collections per year. Yeah. Now it's going, it's transforming, and now it will start vice versa from a consumer. A consumer will actually identify, a consumer will uh, transfer, I mean, his own desires in terms of style, in terms of uh, his body. And retailers, with the help of tech vendors like 3D Look, will actually, uh, using machine learning, using a lot of data, will, will identify these trends in terms of styles and in terms of body shapes across different locations. And then uh, this will move to design and to production. So it will be transformed completely, vice versa. Yeah, the way I feel like it is previously, maybe a couple of decades ago, it was more like a supply-based economy, meaning all these big brands would manufacture clothes and the demand would wrap up. If you manufacturer supply, demand would buy it. And then it twisted. It became a demand-based economy where the demand actually tells you what they want. And then you have to create that very fast and then give. That's why like a lot of big companies like Zara's and H&M's of the world came about. And personalization is basically demand-based economy on steroids. Now you have to actually personalize your stuff for every single individual because the demand, that individual and what they want is the most important thing. And people need solutions like 3D Look just to be able to personalize more and more their offering towards the consumer. But you said you have some competitors that started 10 years ago and you have a couple that are just starting now. The way I view competition in this market, um, there are some certain device companies that do accurate body measuring, whether for retail or for medical through devices. Um, then there are like smart mirrors and stuff like that that do uh, measuring for you. And then there's your bucket uh, meaning the companies that do through mobile phones. And the only company that I know from that bucket was Body Labs, which was acquired by Amazon a couple of years ago. Yep. Um, who do you think is the main competition in the market, first of all? Well, it's a good sign that we started to hear about a new competitor, like uh, I think once 
in a few months and it's accelerating now and this company is starting to approach and we see that we are like at least a year ahead but of course they're trying to catch up one of them is fission it's a company from switzerland with actually i think the biggest r&d team which is actually the size is comparable with our team but in terms of the business in terms of the marketing and in terms of the technology they're still behind but of course we are very careful we are very attentive to them there is one Indian company in size with the CEO uh, frequently frequent traveling to London trying to sell to US based. So yeah, there are a few companies which are actually just bootstrapping since 2012 or 13. They are like maybe even Roman profitable, but that's not the way how you should act on this market because you will just miss all the opportunities. Yeah. The companies like Netello or Sizer, they were around even before we started and they still are almost on the same level with just a few developers. So, uh, and um, yeah, we, we, we see that Zalando is claiming that they are going to release something that they developed in-house. They also looked at our solution, but, but I think the culture of Zalando is just, mm-hmm. they always try to do something by themselves, but I know that they tried to acquire Bottle Labs as well. I know that Uniqlo in Japan also is going to release something together with the Japanese vendor, but still they also are going to test us as well. But I just feel that it's much easier for them mm-hmm. to work with the Japanese company, although the results would be, I mean, much worse. So, yeah, I mean, it's really accelerating fast. And I believe that next year should be like the first year of big public launches, of big mm-hmm. uh, like um, case uh, studies, which actually... I mean, we anticipated that and we are uh, very excited about that and some more competitors, uh, more uh, funding grounds. But I think overall, all these trends are good for us. But of course, we should move even faster. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see that this is a very blue ocean space, very, very early stages in the market where you don't actually have a retailer using such a product functionally, whether they produced it in-house or they bought it from someone. It just doesn't exist. And um, Amazon acquired Body Labs. Um, you're saying that Zalando also wanted to acquire Body Labs, but now they're doing an internal solution. I know a couple of companies that I was trying to introduce you to, uh, which told me that they need to develop this in-house. So for, I guess, for the tip of the iceberg, for these giant companies, they have to develop this internally. And um, on the long tail, I see in your customers, now there's the made-to-measure companies, which are more long-tail, lower-ticket customers. And then there's like a big, thick enterprise in the middle, um, that you're trying to target as 3D Look. Can you tell us what kind of companies are you targeting right now? And are there any case studies that you've developed over the past couple of years um, that can be increase in conversions, decrease in returns, anything like that? Uh, yeah, our ICP now in terms of, yeah, so basically we have like two um, um, business models now and actually they are the part of one, but still it's two. So it's a SaaS, uh, but on uh, but main priority for us is selling this SaaS platform to enterprises, which means that it is customized individual approach to every enterprise. Basically, we have uh, companies like, yeah, so we already have uh, commercial agreements with companies like uh, Nike or VF Corporation that owns uh, Vans or North Face or like uh, a a few other companies. So, I mean... uh, Those are huge companies. Are you able to develop any case studies with them? Like, has anyone tested the product? Um, Can we see it live anywhere for, like, Nike? So, you will see it live publicly in Q1, Q2 next year. And Mm -hmm. now they are testing it internally on either employees or some 
selected number of uh, consumers or focus groups and mm-hmm. see good results. But still, uh, next year, as I said, should be uh, the year of some big releases. And uh, we sell to them. We sell them personalization and we sell them actually understanding of body data of their consumers to improve their supply chain. Mm-hmm. So basically, for them, it's extremely important to improve the supply chain, to reduce uh, not only returns, but to reduce like the, the amount of apparel that they have in stock, et cetera, et cetera, because it will definitely affect their bottom line, it will definitely affect their stock price, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of SMBs, so we still do both. We do SaaS, we, we, we do SMBs, we do enterprises, when main focus is on enterprises, but we need SMBs to get immediate traction, immediate of course. data that we can use for enterprises. But eventually, I want actually to focus on enterprise, like to have only enterprises and just to keep SaaS only for SMBs in a very self-service mode with a very low uh, like uh, cost of sale. And uh, for SMBs, our ICP now is a company that does some made-to-measure stuff mm-hmm. or that does uniforms uh, for factories, for schools, for, I mean, for anything, for airlines. And they can just, for them, it's uh, crucial to have the easiest and fastest to use and the cheapest way to remotely measure their consumers because now they spend from 5 to $30 on the average to measure one consumer. With us, it's reduced to less than a dollar. It can be reduced to cents. They needed to put some effort there uh, mm-hmm. until we released the, uh, the widget. And now we see the, the wow effect because they, are, they, they, even, they even don't believe that there are just two lines of code that they need to implement and it's live. So we do believe that now we will reduce the sales cycles, we will get enough data so we can scale it, so we can raise more money right for scaling because we are we are still in the mode in the learning mode. Yeah, yeah. The way I see it, um, for in terms from a market adoption perspective, you have to go to top companies like Nike. But then there's all these long tail companies that need such a solution, like made, made to measure companies or like uniform. Um, or sportswear companies. So it's good that you're going to this long tail, very niche markets just to validate the product, validate the offering, validate the technology. But in the meantime, you're pushing for these large, large enterprises that would potentially turn into much larger contracts sometime next year. And as far as I know, you have multiple offices. Um, Your CTO is in London. Your team is in Ukraine, Odessa. Your chief strategy officer is in New York and you're also moving to New York. I mean, you've been traveling all around the world uh, for the past couple of years. You basically have no home but now you're moving to New York. How do you sustain the culture across these three different cities and three different offices? What are some of the advantages of having such a dispersed office structure? Oh, well, I mean, based on my previous experience at Clicky, for example, I made some mistakes when I didn't understand that we need to invest money into bringing everyone together on corporate events and to invest money in HR, to invest money in all of that. In the beginning, in my previous company, I thought that it's not necessary they will somehow get along well, but then I just understood that we need that that we we have advantages by by having people in different locations just because of different cultures, different I mean access to different talent pools. But this advantage is that we need to uh, spend more money to bring everyone to some corporate events once per quarter, or I mean, and some big events once per year. And we need to spend more uh, to to spend more more money for some corporate tools like newsletters, like Confluence, etc., etc., And uh, also, 
I mean, we are going to implement OKRs. Finally, we are going to test OKRs this quarter. It will also help with alignment of everyone on the same goals. And uh, yeah, I see it as our advantage. And uh, I do believe that uh, it's the right thing that we have uh, product and development and customer success in Ukraine. But definitely, we will need to have uh, marketing and sales mm -hmm. in the US and then in the other market that, that we decide to go mm -hmm. after. I mean, I see this a lot in uh, Ukraine, but even in Odessa, even this small city of Odessa, I see a lot of good entrepreneurs um, like the Regal guys, like Dennis. Um, they have their core technical team in Odessa and then they have uh, sales and marketing elsewhere, whether that's the UK or the US, I guess that's the right approach to go. Um, you also organized the Mobile Beach Conference in Odessa, and I was actually very impressed by the whole atmosphere of having a tech conference on the beach um, last year when I came. And as far as I remember, you were organizing that conference with your dad, who is also a part of your team. How is that relationship working out so far? Isn't it tough to work with family? Well, it's tough. Uh, I wouldn't argue over <laughs> that. And yeah, but we, we, we have a long experience of working together because my dad also uh, was a partner in my very, very, very first businesses. And then he previously worked at telecom industry and I brought him to help me when I launched my startup accelerator Vanabis together with the two partners, mm -hmm. uh, with two partners with Alex and with Artyom, and uh, so I brought Dad to actually to to ramp up the operations, to work with the teams. So he was basically managing Vanabis, and we had a lot of arguments, of course. But then we just it allowed us to understand how I mean how we can get get, get along well to avoid some kinds of like uh, things that we just. Uh, that uh, that make us uh, happy, that make us uh, uh, argue, and then just when I asked him to help me with the, with the conference, especially with uh, to bring startups there to make a startup uh, who organize the pitches there, etc., etc., it went smoothly because we already had a lot a lot mm -hmm. of experience of working together. And um, to close on 3D look, I know that you went through the Boost Accelerator in the US, and then you raised. Um, some money from US VCs and then some money from regional VCs. How tough was the whole process with a team uh, predominantly based in Ukraine? And why didn't you do much Europe fundraising? Meaning, why didn't you approach pan-European VCs or the UK VCs? I mean, as any startup that goes through Accelerator in the US, we were excited. We thought that we will raise uh, money from prominent uh, Silicon Valley-based VCs much easier, but then I just understood that the earliest round that we should try to raise from them is the Series A now in this just on this market state. And uh, then, yeah, I think we just got a lot of experience, but I only switched more focus to European based VCs like uh, this year. And also, it's funny because for them, some of them considered us mm -hmm. as a US company because our main market is US and they, or they couldn't invest in Delaware company. But US-based VCs considered us as European company because we have the major headcount in Europe. So, my, so that's, that's why I'm moving, is one of the main reasons why I'm moving to New York to actually really to build the image of the true, real US company before our Series A, but I mean, uh, going to Boost VC was uh, I, I, the main reason why I, why why I decided to try is just credibility and validation. But because Boost VC is quite well known there, especially in terms of uh, Draper family, 
And, and also it helped us because, yeah, it sets some kind of like the validation. But I, I wouldn't say that I got, I mean, uh, I, I, I think I got something from there. I still am, we are, I'm still getting some help from Adam Draper. But uh, just, I mean, uh, it wasn't like, I mean, uh, like a breakthrough for us. But I think we got mm-hmm. what we wanted. I feel like um, a lot of the founders go through that dilemma. When a US VC looks at them, they feel like they're a Turkish company or they're a, basically a European company. And when you go to speak with a European VC, yep. you seem like a US company. And more so if you have revenue from like 10 different countries, let's say you have customers from Germany, France, Southeast Asia, US, Latin America, whatever, um, then you're nowhere's company, right? You're basically a global company with offices in a couple of different locations. Then it's, it becomes even much tougher to raise that. I mean, especially in these very early stages. Once you move to Series B or Series C, then it ends up becoming not a problem. Um, then the problem ends. Uh, but until then, it's probably problematic. And New York is the best place for you to be. I mean, it's the capital of retail. It's the capital of brands. So um, I think you're doing the right move. Hopefully, uh, when we speak again in a year from now or so, you will be raising your much larger Series A. Well, um, thanks for joining the podcast. It was a pleasure. And let's be in touch. Thanks, Ines. I mean, very interesting questions. Hope that li- listeners will also find it really, really interesting. So, yeah, let's keep in touch. Hope to see you soon in New York. Ukraine has a bunch of startups like 3D Look with their technical office back at home, but sales and marketing offices around the US. I'm a firm believer that fashion will transform into a more consumer-centric approach and the traditional supply chain will get disrupted. I'm excited to see how this story will unfold. In the next episode, we'll have Jan from Alphabet. Although he's just a boring VC today, like myself, he previously started a company, grew it to 100 employees, and then IPO'd. Martin will again lead this one. Cheers. Here's a snapshot of all the activities we do here at Glocal. Apart from publishing a new podcast episode every Monday, we also publish video summaries on Saturdays. These short 5-10 to minute videos are published across all of our social media channels. I also write brief weekly articles with core insights from every episode. Lastly, we do Tuesday Tips, where we gather advice from very influential people and share it on our social media. To get all that into your email inbox every week, please go to our website, theglocal.co, and subscribe to our email newsletter. We are very active on social media, so I beg you to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Ciao.